Hey, hey, water coolings. Welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Today we are joined by a new friend, a remarkably funny and welcoming individual, comedian Caroline Skoog, to talk about the decision by Jenny Slates and there's a few others out there to step away from voice acting certain animated characters because of the color of their skin, how comedy is surviving during COVID, and if the pursuit of satisfaction is more important than the pursuit of happiness. Will Smith, are you listening? I have a uh, sequel idea for you. <laughs> but in regards to Jenny Slate stepping down as the voice of Missy on Big Mouth, it made me think about, you know, my own experiences writing characters, writing comedy, <laughs> not doing so well. I don't know. Maybe some people thought it was funny. And who I was surrounded by when, you know, I was writing these characters. In the episode, I mentioned how there needs to be a better focus on, you know, changing the makeup of who showrunners and producers are. And of course, changing the way writers rooms look and I had the experience when I was writing my writing partners were usually white it wasn't that I purposely chose it to be that way but it just so happened that my friends who enjoyed writing scripts and doing comedy were white I think the important distinction was we never tried to write a character that wasn't a representation of ourselves as we mentioned in the episode just because you have a black animated character doesn't mean you're being diverse if the person voicing the character is white, if the people writing for the character are white, if the producers and showrunners who create the direction of the show are white. It's just another one of those band-aid solutions that don't really do anything in the long term. Kristen Stewart recently had a few very thoughtful and insightful comments on the topic, uh, but more related to LGBTQ plus characters and actors saying, I would never want to tell a story that really should be told by someone who's lived that experience. Having said that, it's a slippery slope conversation because that means I could never play another straight character if I'm going to hold everyone to the letter of this particular law. There are ways for men to tell women's stories, or ways for women to tell men's stories, but we need to have a finger on the pulse and actually have to care. If you're telling a story about a community and they're not welcoming to you, then fuck off. But if they are, and you're becoming an ally and a part of it, and there's something that drove you there in the first place that makes you uniquely endowed with a perspective that might be worthwhile, there's nothing wrong with learning about each other and therefore helping each other tell stories. I, and you know, I very much agree with the statement by Kristen Stewart there. There are many, 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 many stories that need to be told, but there is clearly a right way and a wrong way to do so. Also in the episode, Caroline and I talk about the importance of comedy during COVID and how comedy bars and clubs have been surviving. For our Minnesota listeners and just fans of comedy in general, make sure to support the Facebook fundraiser by The Corner Bar, which on top of shutdown regulations had a very devastating fire a few weeks ago. So obviously a, a, a good opportunity to support a center for comedy here in Minnesota. We also get into a bit of a conversation about the offensiveness of jokes and how we deem something to be offensive. I share my accented voice characters with Caroline, and she gets to decide if any of them are offensive. There may be one offensive one that, uh, I don't know, you'll have to listen and find out. <laughs> and in our final news story, Caroline and I discuss the meaning of happiness and satisfaction. While you're listening to that conversation, I want to pass the same question off to you, listener, that I asked Caroline in the episode, but what does happiness mean to you? So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 54 titled The Pursuit of Satisfaction with Caroline Skoog. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. If they still are, why are lean cuisines the ultimate microwavable every meal meal? Because it only 
takes two minutes and like they are exactly what you expect them to be. I think they they're always right on the nose of what you expect them to be. You know, you you get what you pay for. You know what you're getting yourself into. It's never anything less and it's never anything more. And it's honestly, it's like a, a very consistent meal choice. They raised me more than uh, I think home cooking did. It's the tale <laughs> of suburbia. All right. Well, Caroline, are you ready to jump into our first news story? Yeah. This is from Variety TV News, June 24th, 2020. Jenny Slate exits Big mouth. Black characters should be played by black people, she says. Jenny Slate, best known by millennials as the voice of Marcel the Shell with shoes on, has exited her role as Missy on the Netflix show Big Mouth due to the character being biracial. The character Missy has a white mother and a black father. Slate states, at the, start, <laughs> at the start of the show, I reasoned with myself that it was permissible for me to play Missy because her mom is Jewish and white, as am I. But Missy is also black, and black characters on an animated show should be played by black people. In her statement, Slate acknowledged that by portraying Missy, she was, quote, engaging in an act of erasure of black people. She continues, ending my portrayal of Missy is one step in a lifelong process of uncovering the racism in my actions. Big Mouth co-creators, including Nick Kroll and Andrew Goldberg, who the main character Nick and Andrew are based from, Kroll actually voices his character Nick, while John Mulaney voices Andrew, release a statement in support of Slate's decision to exit the character Missy, stating, We sincerely apologize for and regret our original decision to cast a white actor to voice a biracial character. We made a mistake, took our privilege for granted, and we're working hard to be better moving forward. Their statement continues, We look forward to being able to explore Missy's story with even greater authenticity in the years to come. So there is an update. Slate will voice the character of Missy in the upcoming season, as production has already wrapped. But in season 5 and 6, Missy will be voiced by comedian Io Debris. So, Caroline, do you, do you agree or do you disagree with Slate's statement about these types of roles? I agree to like a... I don't want to say like to a certain point that makes it sound bad. I agree that like black voice actors are it's harder for them to find work in the way that Hollywood is set up as like a white supremacist structure. Okay, sorry, maybe I shouldn't start this with a counterpoint because I do agree. It's also a way for Big Mouth to just win diversity points just by looking like it's a diverse show, but without having to actually pay a black actor, which like, why wouldn't you? And it, you look at it and it's already pretty majority white cast. Um, then it, it's like, how do you judge like race, or race accurate casting? I think that's a very like interesting aspect of it. I was reading this article about the, I wrote it down. His name's Dante Bosco. He was on uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. And he says, I always tell people that if I had to wait around for a Filipino-American role, I would not have a career. So it's like, are, are we just going to wait for writers' rooms to concoct these narratives where ca people can play characters that are their race and there's enough of them to go around where it's not, I guess, exclusive to these specific roles or like paradigms because in the past it was like black cartoon characters were in like the 50s and 60s often like racist stereotypes i this vox article i was reading said that a lot of black actors just said they wouldn't do it and so instead of just writing better characters or taking the note they just had white actors do racist stereotypes i don't know it's and it's not just big mouth too there's like bojack horseman allison brie played diane who's a, a vietnamese character and then you have shows like the boondocks where samuel l jackson plays a white character i don't know it's just i think there's a like clearly a white supremacist structure in hollywood like i just said and it comes down to more than just like casting i think it comes down to the narratives that are being constructed and how they're going about building characters and who would want like to play. Otherwise, you're just going to like get into identity politics much, much harder than delving into the issues of racism. Like materially, you should be working to get more people of color into into to voice acting roles, but also into writers' rooms, also into producers' positions. 
Because otherwise you're just going to be like, hey, you're an Asian guy. Will you play this Asian part for me? You know, like you don't want to be reductionist like that because it's so hard to find work in Hollywood as is. I definitely agree with you. I think so much pressure is put onto these actresses and actresses. Regardless of the situation, I believe kudos to Jenny Slate for doing what she, this is what she thinks is best. Uh, You know, same for situations like Kristen Bell. But we're blaming these actors and actresses for taking jobs when we're not putting any blame on the producers, on the showrunners who are hiring casting directors, who are looking for the certain person for the certain role who are hiring writers you know we need more in this case we need more black showrunners we need more black producers to hire black writers because uh, i was listening to another podcast they were talking about how white writers rooms are writing for black characters and then they write this very blackface hip racial rapping character we're not putting enough blame on those people now i'm not saying that you know we need to have i think the the black population in america is 13.4 percent we don't need to have this exact percentage but the system should be working better for everyone and we need to hold these producers accountable we need to hold these showrunners accountable we need to hold these casting directors these writers accountable and stop always blaming actors and actresses for taking a job i kind of i think like when you when you get to a certain level of fame it's very easy to blame like I'm I'm gonna blame Scarlett Johansson for taking those jobs yes. like she doesn't need to be playing like a trans character when there's already <laughs> it's already so hard for a trans person to get a job in Hollywood based on the structures that are at play and so they just hire cis people to do that I mean like I know that's not we were just talking we were just not talking about that but no no that's a that's a good point Jenny Slate is going to be fine if she doesn't have this job I'm but I'm not going to blame like a struggling actor who needs a job to put food on the table or a roof over their head obviously if they're taking a job that's you know incredibly racist or incredibly stereotyped that's an issue but if they're taking a character like Missy, you know, if it was an up and coming half Jewish person, I wouldn't blame them as much as say Jenny Slate. She has the opportunity. She has that, you know, monetary bankroll, Scarlett Johansson. They don't need to play those characters. Yeah. And also just like knowing that I guess the animation aspect of it, it's is you're not going to think about the voice actors if it's a good show and you're watching it. So it can still be celebrated as like this diverse gang of and like, wow, there's so much representation physically but the the people that like the parts are representing or the the parts that are being represented aren't actually reaping the benefits behind the scenes i guess if that makes sense they're celebrating black characters without actually paying any black actors that's a very good point i don't know it makes me <laughs> it also made me want to when i was reading it think about a show like what if there was an animated show with a bunch of different races represented and then and all of the actors, none of them played the race that they actually were. Like, that would be interesting. I think, I think I'd want to That kind of would be interesting. Yeah. No one plays their own race. <laughs> well, kind of to that, like, monetary aspect, you know, as an up-and-coming comic yourself, you know, what role does that monetary aspect of the job play in deciding, you know, for example, in this case, should I take the role? Or in kind of your case, should I take this specific gig? I mean, I think it influences the decision a lot, whether or not, like, that's what I would consider like you should do morally. I mean, I can't really actually impose on anyone, but I think that a lot of actors I know wouldn't take it. A lot of them would. A lot of them wouldn't be like really quiet about it. I don't know. We're all, we're, we all get to different places though. I think morally, like I wouldn't. I I don't know. I just... Well, yeah, it's kind of that like moral versus monetary discussion. Like, like in my own personal experience, back a few years ago, I was offered to do a voice for a pony on a My Little Pony Brony edition. And for people who don't know, like bronies are people who really like My Little Pony. They're men. I think it's like an interest, but there's also like a sexual non 
sexual fetish. But anyways, I was offered to do the voice of this pony for a few episodes for a few hundred dollars. I was really freaking broke at that time. You know, this is when I was living on my car. I was like, I can't do this. To me, I was able to say no because like I had a very supportive family. I had that like monetary safety net. But a lot of people don't do that. And, you know, as we know, trying to break into the entertainment industry outside of the obvious barrier of nepotism, you know, that financial barrier is huge. If I have a supportive financial net, I can go and do auditions. I can take jobs that don't pay as much. But if someone else doesn't have that, if they're having to work 60 hours a week being a waiter or waitress, obviously I'm going to get more jobs, but it doesn't mean I'm a better voice actor. That's why every famous comedian, every like big honcho comedian had their parents pay for their rent when they were trying to come up sorry they're they're all they are they're all rich like because comedy the way that it functions is you have to have some sort of stability on the side while also devoting yourself entirely to this thing that you're trying to get good at more power to people that can do that I, I wish i could it's just something we like it's not as simple as one big break you know there's a whole behind the scenes going on that in their parents' bank accounts. It takes money. I think that's something like, yeah, we don't talk about enough because I'm, there are comedians, specifically when you're talking about comedy, there are comedians that, you know, are working and struggling and getting by living with 18 people in New York. But there's also a lot of comedians who are able to do two, three shows a night because they don't have to work during the day. Mm-hmm. And especially like voice acting, when just getting the voice acting, like you need a good setup. Even my setup for podcasting, it was a good chunk of money and not everyone has that opportunity to spend that extra income on on good equipment, on, you know, audition tapes, on going into recording studios, because sometimes the difference between getting a voice acting gig is sometimes the equipment you use, because maybe your voice doesn't sound as good on this piece of equipment versus that piece of equipment. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. Wait, I, I had a follow up question to the what we were talking about a second ago with um like the moral implication of taking a gig that is maybe not something entirely in your in your wheelhouse. Like if this were to be the question, I guess, like a decade ago, or a century ago, maybe a decade ago, I don't know. But like, would you do blackface if that's how you were going to pay your bills, but you didn't agree with it? It's like, I still think that's wrong. And I still think we can get upset at that person. They didn't center Missy's blackness as her character. And I think a lot of it had to do with it being played by Jenny Slate. Maybe not a lot of it. I don't know. I haven't watched the show in a while. (laughs) It's also a show about puberty, mostly. It's actually a pretty good show. But the interesting question about your blackface example is, you know, we've talked about this before, a hundred years ago, we wouldn't be thinking it's as offensive as it is now. So would somebody be more willing to do blackface 100 years ago than today? I would say 100% yes, because that was a, you know, a social norm at that time, even though it was still to make fun of, you know, a black person, these stereotypes, people still were like, oh, that's fine. We're fine with it. Oh, yeah, it was like, just, it's just degrading. I mean, still. And then I don't know, voice acting is different, though, in the sense that it has the illusion of being like an open, anyone can do it is the illusion of anyone can break into the industry. It's like show business. It's got this, um, Mm -hmm. especially now in like 2020, where we have gone further. We have these, we have a a more constrained setup, I guess, of like what is acceptable. It's just, it looks different. Well, like what needs to be done to further address these issues, you know, kind of what needs to be done to bring forth this even playing field? I think a lot of it has to be dismantling these really, really large, um, like media conglomerates, I guess, where they, when that, whenever there's capital as like their primary interest, there's going to be a, a fear to shifting the content in order to appeal to these markets. Clearly, like, I, I guess I'm thinking politically too, like the idea that incrementalism. So like, let's say you take one, one white CEO out and place it with a black CEO. It still doesn't equate to like 
the entire system of how how people break in from the bottom into the like rising up there, there's just going to be minimal change and even even if you do change the way that people are represented on television or like representation still doesn't equate to equality among populations like in general when people put representation on TV is like their primary, like a single issue. And I think it kind of distracts from, distracts from like the severe stratification that we live in all the time. That is a huge issue. And that can't be solved with crazy Asians, crazy rich Asians too or something. <laughs> well, yeah, that's entirely true. You know, representation in Hollywood has always been very poor. You know, it's getting better, but there's still, you know, work needed to be done. And I think that's why we've talked a lot about it, but like, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I just thought of like a the way that I, I'm thinking about that is like the representation in Hollywood has always been bad and it, there's still work needed to be done. But the representation is bad because work needs to be given to people of color. And that's mm. when you would get representation. It's like a, we need to think about it as like they're actors and actresses and writers and artists, but they're like people trying to make a living. And right now it's really hard to break into that and make it your source of income as, as a person of color. Jenny Slate could, I th like I said, I think she did a fabulous job in standing up for what she believes in, but I think she could have done a little better on the wording. She specifically said uh, black voice actors can only be played by people, black people, and already black people have limited opportunities. So if you're only limiting them to these characters, you know, a showrunner is going to say, we don't need to hire black people because we don't have a black character. But I think the very important thing, and, you know, this is one of the biggest gripes I have with Black Lives Matter and why All Lives Matter exists is, you know, somebody is able to take Jenny Slate's statement of black people can only be played by black people. And then somebody's going to use the rebuttal of the stupid rebuttal of, well, white people can only be played by white people and dragons can only be voiced by dragons. And it completely is such a stupid rebuttal, but that's what people that disagree with your statement are going to say. You know, voice acting should be an equal playing field. The best person with the best voice should win. But we need to remember, you know, like if we we're going to run a race and I haven't eaten for like a week and we go to the race, everything looks equal. But because I haven't eaten for a week, you end up blowing past me. I mean, even though everything in that race looked equal, it wasn't. So maybe I'm given a seven second head start to I don't know the science behind this, but that would equate to the reactionary difference of me not having eaten for a week. At the end of the day, I think voice acting should be equal, but the underrepresented group needs to be fed first. I think we need to give these tools to this underrepresented group to make it actually even instead of just saying, like you said, instead of just putting a black CEO or a black individual in a black CEO position, actually giving them the tools to succeed in this industry. I think I agree with that. I also just saw another quote that I wanted to to pitch into this, which is like, when it comes to anime and video games, this is from Bill Butts, uh, <laughs> people of color are only given opportunities to read for people of color, which is extremely rare. When you pigeonhole who can play what, it's just, and then keep the executives in the writer's rooms white, like, or like maybe minimally, let's say like taught, like tokenize people or so, whatever it is, because it's getting one black person in the writer's room is improvement and celebrating that and not realizing that it's just one person instead of the actual whole itself functioning it no no i think that's i think i mean the good example is like you know i love 30 rock but their writer's room they had one black character mm -hmm. you know twofer because he went to harvard as a black person but also he was the token black character on you know the show and he wasn't able to write for tracy morgan because there was this different dichotomy obviously he was this like white black person because it was more safer at that time and tracy morgan was this stereotypical you know black character and just because you're hitting these diversity quotes doesn't mean you're actually being diverse you're just hitting quotes to hit quotes like we kind of both agree you need showrunners and producers to hit quotes or just to have the appearance of equality yes very good point just to have the appearance of being like 
we are one of the liberal good institutions when it's like, really? No, you're a mega, a billion dollar corporation. I don't even know. <laughs> it's just, it's all kind of like bland bullshit at this, bland bullcrap at this point. Go ahead, say bullshit. I'm talking about <laughs> that. But no, it's like the optics of being diverse without actually being diverse. Yeah, and without actually having to reckon with um, the exclusionary process of, of Hollywood itself. When you have more money, I think, and when you're up top, it's very easy to just keep that within the, that class and that elitism. I you know, I think Nick Crow is an incredibly funny person, but when he started Big Mouth, he was already a working person in Hollywood. He had a bunch of different shows, so he, he had the money, but I think there's just this general laziness to actually not do the work and go out and cast someone who fits that role. I mean, it's it crazy how quickly they found Io Debris to fill this role once they got backlash for having Jenny Slate voice Missy. And it's crazy how this decision came just after the Black Uprising, <laughs> how it it just became, wow, it just came. I mean, like, I know that was an unearthing moment for, like, race in America for a lot of white people. They're old. They're rich. Like, I can't believe that uh, no one had ever thought of that before they're not old actually they're very young but they're older <laughs> they're than definitely me. in a more responsible age yeah it, it seems like they should be aware of like the stigmas being perpetuated in hollywood that like it because jenny slate probably did that just because it was it was deemed okay because it's just been done before which is how things like this get perpetuated and how people just make decisions like, well, I guess it's okay because this person I admire did it. Well, let me let me ask you this. As someone, I have a few different voice actor or voice acting characters that I work on, not willing to share anything live. <laughs> but at what point does an accented character become offensive? One of my characters... One of my accented characters I do is Obama. Obviously, I'm not black, but at what point does, you know, is Obama so popular that I can do his voice? Like, I've been racking <laughs> my brain on trying I to think, find, like... I think you can do Obama's voice. I think that's fine. What is, like, the line in the sand on what I can cross compared to what I can't? And how popular does someone need to be? And, you know, how offensive is it? And, like, here, I'll, re I'll read you my characters, and you tell me if any of them are offensive. Oh, brother. So, <laughs> I don't think they are, but they might be. So, I have an ancient Roman soldier... I have a Tennessee hillbilly. I have an Australian bounty hunter. Oh, watch it. Watch yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I have Barack Obama. I have a smooth talking cowboy, Jerry Seinfeld, a Boston dock worker, and an Italian dad. Ooh, okay. Italian is getting pretty dicey now. Like if you think I went into like the stereotypical Italian, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to get in trouble, but I'm doing my hands like I am. Uh, do you think that would be too much? I think the only thing that could really save you is if you then die. Had an Italian friend. Yeah, is if you had an Italian friend. Uh, no, if you if you like merge these characters, that would probably be the only way you could save yourself. But it's really funny. I've never heard the uh, the idea that like doing an Obama accent would be offensive. But I guess that's because he's he was the president, and there's been a pre someone doing an impression of the president since uh, forever. Yeah, I mean, like I guess I haven't. It's yeah, it's hard for me to say without having seen these characters. I just have to like think of a Tennessee hillbilly that I like met one time and decide if I <laughs> thought he offended me. Well, I think as long as you're not doing like offensive stereotypes, you know, you're not playing upon like the common tropes of a character. You're you're kind of in the clear. And I think as long as there's some depth to the character, this is me trying to explain my offensive I'm characters. I'm an Australian battling hunter. <laughs> I uh, am so down. I uh, catch I'm from a country that caught on fire this year, and I'm also British now. <laughs> 
<laughs> I liked how it turned into the British. It happens every time to me. Um, so final thoughts on the story before we start doing offensive accents. I think it's really important, though, just to be looking around the room, I guess, for where the animation animated show is coming from, who's writing it, who's producing it. If you look around and it's mostly white people, the conversation itself is going to be pretty futile because it, like, it's just talking in circles a little bit about what, like, it kind of doesn't really, it, it matters, I guess, who's getting paid, who's in the room, who is the opportunity to rise in the industry. Um, and until, like, we can equalize those positions, equalize the playing field, then then I think, like, it, yeah, it, it should be looked at it depending on the characters of, but it is dicey, you know, the race accurate casting is very like we, we i think there should just be more imaginative and creative stories coming out and narratives than i think the characters and who plays them will kind of naturally fall into place who's telling the stories is another thing Th those decisions are huge yeah I, I agree you know my final thoughts are i don't think you need to be a certain ethnicity gender sexuality religion to voice an anime character but it does matter when those factors play a key role in the development of a character or where the story of that character goes. You know, Big Mouth is a show about these kids going through puberty, going through the hell of having hormones for the first time. I mean, they have their hormone monsters. Even though the character of Missy is biracial, if we didn't have that information, if we never saw her parents, people would consider her black. People still consider her black, even though they may know that information. So say, for example, I'm a black girl, this is not one of my characters, going through puberty, and I relate to the character of Missy and the change she's growing through, but I find out she's voiced by a white woman? We might not think it's a big deal, but subconsciously, it's huge. People need role models that not only sound like them, but also look like them. It's, it's very important. I agree with that. Uh, I would like to welcome to the podcast budding comedian and a new friend of the show, Caroline Skoog. Welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Hopefully I said your last name right. Yeah, yeah. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Skoog. 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 Is that, what is that? Uh, I think it's Swedish, Norwegian, Danish. Something something very cloudy and, and pale. Something in that area. Yeah. So as as we begin to hopefully turn the bend on comedy overreactions, we have Dave Chappelle winning a Grammy and an Emmy for his Sticks and Stones special. Cancel culture has seemed to be somewhat canceled. We're holding comedians who do predatory shit somewhat accountable. It's not like a perfect science, you know, but it is getting a little better. You know, what what does comedy look like coming out of COVID? You're gonna be the voice of comedy. <laughs> It's hard to I've honestly been like hanging pretty low since it started. But comedy in COVID basically looks a lot like uh, asking customers to put their mask back on our audience members. When things started, it's hard because right now, like I'm not going out. I don't know of anyone that really is because it's real like we're surging a lot. And at first, I would say like I did a couple Zoom shows. They were fine uh they they paid probably better than than regular shows do but it just didn't have that same sort of pop i guess they're like the the magic of it face-to-face -face interaction same thing you would get i know that feeling i know that yeah feeling. yeah I get, you can you can sympathize it's cra crazy one time this, this summer i did a show for shake hairs which was like it is a non-profit on i think the north side of minneapolis they did a lot of mutual aid work during the uprising in june and may so Shay had this big tent and had a bunch of comics come out and do like five minutes in front of an audience that was spread outside, kind of in St. Paul near the Capitol. But it was also in July. People were getting eaten alive by mosquitoes like 20 feet away from the mic. You couldn't really hear anything because there was like a street behind us and just surround sound fireworks and like images. It was really scary and it felt 
very much like we were constantly being reminded that uh, comedy doesn't need to be happening right now. Like, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. Maybe maybe we don't have to do our silly little jokes about jerking off right now. But that was my very <laughs> cynical view. It was like still really cool. And I'm glad that I got to experience that. And then since then, I think I've done a few indoor shows that have been honestly pretty much the same. There's been very little difference other than like people wearing masks and the audience being a little bit smaller. Well, I think that's, you know, kind of the interesting thing in the sense of like we're in a time and space in the universe, in the timeline of the world, the existence of humans that comedy is important, but it's not the most important thing that we need to worry about. You know, obviously places like the corner club or the corner club, you know, the comedy corner, places like that, these, you know, smaller clubs, they need money to stay in business. But I don't think there needs to be this rush to rush back and do it unsafely. You know, obviously, we're what, eight, nine months in, and we're now hitting the highest daily totals in the US. I mean, it's getting worse because we didn't actually take this serious the first time around. So we're getting hit a second time around. Like it's nice to have shows like SNL back and kind of to to be able to laugh. And you know, like I've talked about this show, like I don't really want to talk about COVID on the show because people have been hearing about COVID every single day. So I think there still needs to be kind of these these escapes, but we don't need to be investing all of our money where that money could go into other places like, you know, feeding kids who since they can't go to school right now don't necessarily get two three meals a day yeah i don't know i guess something i've been thinking about for all the comics that there are in many like uh, speaking about the twin cities only like a handful of them are full-time make their entire living through comedy then there's also people like me who like do shows like that was like a not my primary source of income but i made uh, i made like cushion cash for that <laughs> and like and then, and then I get it. You know, I do a podcast in my basement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It. And then there's like open micers, and all of them are equally valid. Like it's not one of them. I'm not privileging one over the other. But without a second stimulus, right? You had that first stimulus for 1,200. I didn't personally receive it because I was in college at the time. Just want to pepper that in that it wasn't universal. Um, not everyone got it. Mm -hmm. But people that made their living on comedy who are existing now, like, are kind of in a tough spot. Where you do you keep? filing for unemployment and like using that up or do you go back and do shows because people there's audiences clubs are open i worked an open mic two weeks ago two or three weeks ago that didn't need to be happening we well, i think that's kind of goes into that last story of with the voice actors like there are comedians that make their entire living as comedians and then there's you know these struggling comedians that they need that additional income to you know to be able to afford rent and i think if you were a comedian before this who had just started to be a full-time comic like if you were on the edge or if you were just about to like i would hope that you that you started to like look for another job in the meantime just because <laughs> just because like it's the comedy as a career itself is very rarely sustainable yes it's hard to say that every show you take is going to be socially distanced is going to be practiced by and a lot of the a lot of the audiences right now especially like right when things started to open back up full-time and shows started to happen like the first the first crowds were were more like people that didn't believe in the coronavirus in the first place because they were the ones that were most eager eager so i just think that's i think that's interesting that said like when things are so heightened and like things are very tense politically uh economically environmentally shit is just funnier like <laughs> it's very true. I, there's some really good laughs to be had it's just it sucks that it involves uh sacrificing the well-being of like 
public, I think, a lot of the time. Before we move on, Water Cooler Talk is on a mission to help get back to different parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of the episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to the charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. Caroline, your charity of choice for today's episode is the Shift Cooperative. Do you mind explaining a bit about what they do and the impact they have in our communities, specifically the Twin Cities? So I found them through the Reclaim the Block. Uh, Reclaim the Block is a nonprofit in Minneapolis that was pretty largely widely donated to this summer in, in the aftermath of the uprisings and during the uprisings. And they actually received so many funds that they put a list of other nonprofits that need finances. And I looked at this one and it was youth led, I believe, and like community organized, um, designed to like give kids in North Minneapolis bikes, provide other like activities, I think for them too, as well. Well, this is, this is a weird thing. Sorry to jump in. I didn't, there's a bike shortage right now. I don't know if you knew this, but there's a bike shortage in America, maybe? What? I don't know if it's the world, but definitely in America. There's a bike shortage. Since when? Is that because of COVID? Since recently? I don't know. I just heard about it recently. Like, literally this morning, I heard there's a bike shortage. Right as the vaccine's coming out. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. This whole plan by Biden. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Let's see the ingredients. Pfizer, Lance. That's With the Shift Cooperative. They give bikes to young people. Um, I think they also work on like teaching people how to build bikes. Um, See, because there's not enough bikes. You got to build bikes now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and there's other act- like activities, I think, after school um, for them. So it's a good organization, especially right now um, in the winter. It's something in the community and could always use some more finances. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing them. Obviously, with the bike shortage going on, maybe, I don't know, maybe I was punked. Maybe I was punked. I'll make sure to include it in the corrections corner if I was punked. Although also, Reclaim the Block. I'll plug that too. That is a very good one. We talked about that one a lot during our The Reels Back episode. Uh, All right, Caroline, are you ready to get into, are you ready to talk about some happiness? And if happiness is even real. Yeah, or lack thereof. This is from Quartz, December 21st, 2018. A Nobel Prize winning psychologist says most people don't really want to be happy. Many of us think we want to be happy. But according to Nobel Prize winning cognitive psychologist Daniel Kahneman, many of us are actually working towards some other end. Kahneman contends that happiness and satisfaction are distinct. Working towards one goal may undermine our ability to experience the other. Happiness being a momentary experience that arises spontaneously, and satisfaction being a long-term feeling that builds over time. In his research measuring everyday happiness, Kahneman found that spending time with friends was highly effective in feeling good about oneself, yet those focused on long-term goals that yield satisfaction don't necessarily prioritize socializing as they're often busy with the bigger picture. Kahneman concluded that people want to maximize their satisfaction instead of maximizing their happiness, but argues that satisfaction is based mostly on comparisons. He states, Life satisfaction is connected by a large degree to social yardsticks, achieving goals, meeting expectations, money, he notes, has a significant influence on life satisfaction, whereas happiness is affected by money only when funds are lacking. Poverty creates suffering, but above a certain level of income that satisfies our basic needs, wealth doesn't increase happiness. He says that graph is surprisingly flat. In other words, if you aren't hungry and if clothing, shelter, and your other basics are covered, you're capable of being at least as happy as the wealthiest people. But those fleeting feelings of happiness don't add up to life satisfaction. Looking back, a person who has had many happy moments may not feel pleased on the whole. That sentence hits a bit deep. Hits a bit deep. Kahneman says the key is memory. Satisfaction is retrospective. Happiness occurs in real time. Memory is enduring. Feelings pass. Many of our happiest moments aren't preserved. 
They're not all caught on camera. They just happen. And then they're gone. Take vacation, for example. So Caroline, what what what's your dream vacation? Mm, Italy. I'll just say Italy. Never been. I've never been outside the country. I love that. If you were given the opportunity to take that trip to Italy, have the time of your life, visit what's what's that tower called? Eiffel Tower? Pisa. Leaning Tower of Pisa. Leaning Tower of Pisa, that's also in Italy. The Eiffel Tower is not in Italy. Is it not? The Eiffel Tower is in Paris. Oh my God. Yeah. City All right. love. Italy has Leaning Tower of Pisa and Rome. I, Rome? My geography is getting blasted right now. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, at the, end of, at the end of the trip, all those memories would be erased. Would you still go? According to Kahneman, you might not choose to go at all. The reason for this is we do things in anticipation of creating satisfying memories to reflect on later. <laughs> Of course it's in Paris. That makes so much sense. <laughs> the reason for this is we do things in anticipation of creating satisfying memories to reflect on later. We're somewhat less interested in actually having a good time. This theory can help us explain our current social media-driven culture. As listeners know, I love to rag on social media any chance I get. Kahneman states that to some extent, we care less about enjoying ourselves than presenting the appearance of an enviable existence. We're preoccupied with quantifying friends and followers rather than spending time with the people we like. And ultimately, this makes us miserable. Still, it's worth asking if we want to be happy, to experience positive feelings, or simply wish to construct narratives that seem worth telling ourselves and others, but don't necessarily yield pleasure. Kahneman argues that we feel happiness primarily in the company of others. So meet with a friend and talk it over with them. You might have a good time. So Caroline, I'll be a bit bold here and say we're pretty much good friends at this point. <laughs> so let's let's talk it over. Let's have a good time doing so. And with that, do you agree with the statement put forth by Kahneman that our purpose, satisfaction, is more important than our happiness? I suppose not. I don't know. I've been reading a lot of psychoanalysis or listening to a lot of like theory podcasts, which I think has made me very cynical of happiness at all. But I think that we always function at a lack. And I think we can construct narratives for ourselves that we've been satisfied. But I think I don't. So he's he's proposing the long term is way more important than the short term. I guess that's something I believe. It's weird to, to me to like privilege one over the other if we also function at like at a point where we don't really want to be happy, which is I, I think like we never really want what we think we want. <laughs> I I kind of disagree with his statement. Um, you know, as I mentioned when we were talking you know, prior, that vacation question really struck out to me. Really struck out to, really stuck out to me. Really stuck out to me. You know, I've been rewatching Futurama and in the finale, Fry and Leela, spoilers, it's been out for 20 years, so I don't really care. <laughs> but they're now madly in love after seven seasons and they have the opportunity at the very end to do everything again. Same concept as Kahneman states, you know, their memories would be um, erased, but they would be in this continuous loop. And every time I see, I watch the finale, I think, well, first off, is this what life actually is? Are we just in this continuous loop? When I die, do I just restart? But second off, if I got to the end of my life, you know, I felt I had a good life and I was asked, are you ready to do this again? Would I say yes? And yeah, I think I would. You know, now looking at Kahneman's question, would I still go on vacation if I never remembered it? I would also say yes. I'm someone like, I very much believe life is about moments. What we do in those moments define our happiness. And it's more important than this long, long-term long goal. You know, I can go on this trip and have the time of my life, but if I don't remember it, I'm fine with that because I know in those moments, I was happy. And that gives me at least some sort of solace knowing that my life is worth something. I think that's what we're all looking for in life is like, what is the meaning of my life? And to me, it's about these moments. Like, 
if I do this or this or this, will I enjoy myself in that moment? I'm not thinking about tomorrow. I'm not thinking about yesterday. I'm thinking about this moment. I, I mean, I try to, at least. It's not a perfect science. I do. I believe life is about these moments that we need to cherish more. You know, that's why I, I do agree, you know, with this fact that we go on vacation just to show it off on social media. I know a ton of people that do that kind of stuff because I think we try to show off these moments that we think will make us happy and we miss these moments that actually make us happy. Well, that's interesting, too, is because the thought experiment was like you could go on vacation, do all these crazy things, but you can't bring a camera or like tell anyone about it, which is different than I think remembering it like if, if it's like but you won't remember it then it's like did i have those experiences at all it's kind of like a weird like well if i if everything was wiped then the emotions and the fleeting like defining moments wouldn't be there either like you would you would just have a blank space but if it was just like a matter of cameras then yeah that's just people wa wanting to like get that second hit of dopamine there's the first one of getting to go in the first place and the second one mm, is getting to point. show it i could go to italy and maybe like the first day be having the time of my life but on the second day i'm sure there would be something i was upset about like you know you ever have like a perfect trip but there's always one thing that is like missed about it or off about it i think that's because whatever it is that we set our desires on whatever it is that we have in our sights and like push towards what, when, whenever we obtain it, the satisfaction of obtaining our object of desire always coincides with the knowledge and the reality that uh, it's not truly what was going to fulfill us. You said something about on, on your episode with Bianca about how uh, consumerism has gone up, consumer spending has gone up, people are buying more, but also things are costing more. I've bought like four different types of blinds. Like I, I have something in the in the mail coming like every week. And that's what I get excited about. And that's kind of what I like look forward to. But every time it comes after I open the box, it's just kind of, an, it becomes just another item in my various uh, war, wardrobe of items, I guess. So like the weight, the weight is a bigger dopamine hit than the actual result of the weight. Exactly. And that's kind of what keeps us going, I think, is like the, the constant missing, whatever it is that we work towards, like the coincidence of the satisfaction and the dissatisfaction, I think is what propels us because we're constantly chasing happiness and satisfaction. And if we were ever to be completely fulfilled and satisfied, we would just be like those uh, people on Wall-E that are like like amorphous <laughs> kind of figures uh -huh. that just don't do anything and sit there because they, they have all of their needs met. But to have all of your needs and your desires met is to just be dead, is to just be non-existent. Because that's what makes us human. I think that's why we revel in the period between happiness and uh, downfall, I guess. But whatever it is that we want... We need to have that because we need to have something that moves us. It's not ever truly really about the thing itself. I, I definitely I definitely agree with your point because it's the aspect of I'm working towards something. And once I get there, in my mind, I think I'm going to be happy. You know, if I could do a podcast full time, then I'm going to be happy. And then I get to that point, but I'm not actually happy. And then I'm like, oh, if I was a millionaire podcaster, I would be happy. And then I get to that point and I'm not happy. You know, I... I very much believe that it's not that people don't want to be happy. It's that they don't think they deserve to be happy. And a lot of people will self-sabotage themselves. You know, looking around, I'm, you know, I'm in my own studio I built. You know, I'm having conversations with amazing people like yourself. I have, you know, a roof over my head. I'm able to eat three meals a day. I have a good group of friends. I have good hobbies. I built this freaking table myself. Very happy with this table. It's a <laughs> beautiful table. And I'm like, why do I need that next step to make myself happy? 
But I just don't think a lot of people think they really deserve to be happy. You know, I'm not going out every day and helping the inner city school kids get educated and feeding them. You know, I'm not as good as this person doing that. And why do I deserve to be happy? You know, this person should be happier than me because they're doing all these amazing things, but I'm not. And so I think a lot of people end up just self-sabotaging themselves. Yeah, the, the self-sacrifice. And I think that self-sacrifice, though, is also like a form of I kind of like reveling in like that in-between space um, until their desire manifests, I guess. Whatever, like if it's like, I can't do this because X, Y, Z, like in the comparison. Oh, that was actually like a direct quote from the article was that comparison. Was that he said, uh, one of them is, sorry, life satisfaction is based on uh, comparison, social yardsticks. I thought that was interesting because I was thinking about people comparing themselves against others. That's all we can kind of, and it, it feels a little, happiness, emotions are kind of a trap, I think. Because uh, <laughs> we can't, we grow up and we compare ourselves to our parents and that's how we have context for like functioning in the social realm. Um, and then we get into school and like grow past that. We're still just bouncing ourselves and our own identities off of each other to find we're not like this. We know that we're not like that. That was, I guess, off topic. I think uh, this, yeah, people deserve to be happy and people deserve to have those fleeting moments too. I think they're important. I think they're, they're inescapable. People, uh, people need the little, the little dopamine shots. You were definitely onto something there. I think, you know, social media outside of, you know, connecting the world and, you know, I have good friends in Africa that I'm able to stay connected with. It was recently, one of my friends in Africa's birthday, I was able to say happy birthday to oh, her. Oh, happy birthday to her. <laughs> I think I will pass that along. I think those are very important aspects. But also, you know, like you said, we get into this compare culture where, you know, I've been working out a lot and looking fantastic, by the way. Um, but anyways, I look at someone with a six pack, someone like Zac Efron, and I'm like, oh, shit, man, I'm not going to be as happy as Zac Efron is. What does it matter? You know, I can find someone who likes me not looking like Zac Efron. Yeah, I agree with that one. I have that same issue with like just on Instagram models and fitness models because I just started working out again. But then just realizing like this is going to sound dumb or like obvious, but I've been following or looking at some of those pages that are like real, like inst Instagram versus real life. And it's like a picture of someone's very pose. And then it's like yep. a picture of them slouching. But at the same time, it's like the people that we are aspiring to be like, aren't even like that. We aspire to something that isn't there because those people like Zac Efron, I want to look like Zac Efron, then Zac Efron doesn't even look like Zac Efron. Zac Efron had an eating disorder that like ruined his life for years. Yeah, very good And controlled points. it. Like we are all aspiring to be something and the something itself isn't there because when it's another person, I mean, like we're just projecting this perfection onto them. Nobody's perfect. Everyone struggles. And a lot of our struggles are very similar. And I think that's why social interaction is so important because it reminds us that while we are alone a lot of the time and like no one can ever truly understand us, yeah. we're not that alone or that different because we all have struggles that kind of reflect one another. Well, this is how I connect this back to the first story. My uh, superpower is, you know, we need good role models, just like young black girls need black women or young black girls in animated comedies to be voiced by black women. You know, we need good role models. I shouldn't have to look up to, you know, bodybuilders. You shouldn't have to look up to supermodels and say, this is the ideal body that I can be successful in life. I can be happy in life. I can have satisfaction in life. But that's not reality, as you said. Yeah. And like just certain things are just the way they, I don't know, just people realizing that we all, nobody's perfect. And if you put someone on a pedestal, the moment, let's say that you do measure up to that pedestal, even if you can, nothing is there. It's kind of an empty achievement because 
it's not the answer to uh, fulfillment or satisfaction. It's nothing that's going to provide you longevity, a feeling of meaning, especially on, in the, if it's superficial like that. But even like girls my age, like people that aren't famous, I still struggle with that. Looking at Instagrams of like people in college. And if, if it's not like a body image thing, then it's like a social aspect. Should I be going out more? This was not question i've been thinking recently this was you know like when i was a senior well you're currently right now at a club so i mean (laughs) who's the judge (laughs) yeah yeah, i'm in the green room so hopefully the sound isn't bleeding through too much i requested little john (laughs) (laughs) but no i think that's important especially yeah kind of whether it be career whether it be how you look you know even if you reach that milestone, if you didn't work on your own personal issues, like why do you want to reach that milestone? You know? Yeah. No, thinking about your intentions too. Like what is it going to give you? Is it really, when I'm, when I was working out a few years ago, I remember just being like, I want to look like this. And I was like, well, is working towards that and like getting that small, like thinning myself down, is that coming from a place like a healthy place? Is that something that even if I do superficially achieve my like ideal figure, will that you know, make me a better daughter to my parents, a better like friend. But I don't know. It's just something that's, will I look like that forever? Will it ruin me when I stop looking like that? It's just an insustainable goal system. You you kind of have to decide between, do I want to go bright or really going hard after working out? Working out is fantastic. But do I want to go work out seven days a week, two times a day, but I can't go have a burger with my friends. Because I think that goes into what Kahneman was saying is like happiness is really big when it comes to the people you surround yourself with. And I kind of want to ask you that question, you know, do you believe happiness is obtainable without the need of others? Can I be happy by myself? I think you, uh, you I mean, like, I, it's, like I'm going back to earlier, I don't think any of us can ever truly feel like long-term happiness, anything more than enjoyment, which I know is a very negative, it sounds very negative, but I don't know, I'm 22. Give me, give me a, a pass. <laughs> I, I think, no, I'm going to, I no because I think like you can physically be alone and still have other sources that kind of fame social interaction, like reading, I think is still listening. Uh, watching TV is still like mimicking social interactions. Everything itself just is sort of in convert. You're still in conversation with other aspects of human life. And even like objects, if you're playing chess, I think that's still, I don't know, or, or you're just distracting yourself and it's not truly happening. No, I, th- I mean, I think you're onto something. I think you're onto something. So the way I was thinking about this question is there's a reason for companionship in our evolutionary biology, because we wouldn't be here if our parents didn't get freaky with it. I want every listener to think about that right now. (laughs) But anyways, companionship is such an important aspect of humanity. And it doesn't have to always be sexual. It can be asexual as well, you know, and I think it can be companionship between a piece, you're the queen on the other side of the board when you're playing chess with yourself. But I think there's an evolutionary reason why we're more happy when we're surrounded by people. You know, I'm a very romantic person. You know, I believe in love. You know, I think we're all just looking for that person to kind of send our weird internet searches to so we can dump Google. Like we all want some sort of companionship that makes us feel complete. But I do believe we don't need that person to feel complete, but I do believe evolutionary wise. That person can't complete us. Yes, I do. But I do believe evolutionary wise, we need someone else to help us really get to that next level. We can do it ourselves, but it's kind of the system of, you know, it's a lot better to go hunting with a group than go hunting by yourself. I didn't know that. Change my plans next week. You need need hunting partners. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to go alone. (laughs) Very dangerous to go in the woods alone. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, but at the same time, there's still, 
I think something very small and very, if you don't think about it, it might not feel like it's there, but I think there is always with other people, a moment where you realize that they are still like you, there's still always a constant barrier between you and them and you will never fully. Like, what do you mean by that? Like the, the idea that you can never truly know someone like their day to day in like what it, what it feels like to be them, which is like a a very root level. I'm not trying to like be like, we're all subjective or whatever, but (laughs) just that life can be very lonely, even when you're with people for that reason. And when you're with the right people, like it's lessened and it's alleviated, but it's still is there. And it's sad, but it's also really liberating and freeing. And it feels like being an individual is life itself. So that's very interesting to think about. I think that people are good and it's good to hang out with people. I'm sorry. I maybe I've lost my track of my thought again. I mean, I think you're doing very well for yourself. But I mean, it is one of those things where there's what, seven people, seven, there's not seven people in the world. There's seven billion <laughs> people. Seven pe- the cast of Big Mouth. <laughs> it's just the cast of Big Mouth and they're all racist. Um, but there's seven billion people in the world just because you didn't find your one person in this small town you grew up in or you didn't find a group of friends that perfectly completes you in a way that a group of people can complete you in your small town doesn't mean you're going to be alone for the rest of your life. You know, working a lot with male vulnerability, a lot of men just tend to think I never go out and I go only go online and, you know, I don't get out of my small town. No woman's ever going to love me. Well, there's probably someone out there, but there may not just be in this certain region of this expansive world. So I think it's important. I think it's important. You should definitely get to Italy one day because that experience of being able to see how other people live and connect with other people outside of this just small town that by luck, you just happen to be born in. Or I mean, not everyone's born in a small town, but <laughs> just what this one place you grew up in and you spent your time. There's more people that can potentially complete you. I hate when people are saying like, oh man, I hate my life and you know, I need more friends. And I'm like, well, you're only looking for people in your immediate surround or your immediate area. Like look outside of that. Hopefully, you know, potentially you can find a way to be happy and have satisfaction in your life. Yeah. And definitely broadening your experiences and just getting more experience and like gives you more opportunities and, and pathways to find something that like really feels like it completes you or feels like your work. Like it just kind of fits I guess who you are. I'm trying to think like if I wasn't, if I didn't go to college, I might not know that I could do stand up or that I had the opportunity to, or that I was even any good at it at all. Um, not to say that I was, but <laughs> I've actually never heard any of your comedy. I couldn't find any on the internet. So you could be horrible and I would ever, never know. Deliberate. I applied <laughs> to a bunch of jobs after I graduated and needed to <laughs> scrub a dub dub. <laughs> um, what were we just saying? I'm sorry. Oh, just broadening your experience, having more context, I think, just for how to function in the world. You like there you discover more things you love um through that way. You discover more people you love. You have I think abundance feels good, at least in the human memory. And I mean, obviously that's tough to say now when we're potentially gonna be in lockdown again. But one of the positives of social media is you can make those connections outside of just you know, staying in your house. I think, yeah, I think what you said, the abundance of it is important. Some, there is something to be said, I think, about the uniqueness of this experience. 
right before we went into lockdown, I was talking to my dad and I asked him if he had ever experienced anything like this. And this was right before uh, March Madness was like, or this was right after March Madness was canceled. And he just said no. And I just like kind of sat with that thinking like my dad grew up in Cleveland in the 70s. I don't know, just the amount of like car bombings and like the the river catching on fire and the Reagan presidency, 9-11, he was there. And like, he just was kind of in shock at how broad and expansive this uh this tragedy is and how uncertain i think everyone everyone's mindset at, at this point there's something you said about going to the grocery store and i think the first time you saw everyone wearing a mask it the fact that it's universally impacting people's lives is a rare experience that i think is hitting us all a little bit differently and i, I know it's it feels like I, i'm a different person now than i was uh in April or in February of this year. Mm, I love that point. Let's kind of round it back up to, you know, what the story is about and kind of ended on this note. You know, what does happiness mean to you? When I think about being happy or like the moment, uh, the moments that feel best inside of my body is like contentment. And it's not like I have an abundance of all of my needs. I'm not like full to the most extent with like sweets. I'm not covered in like the softest materials. I guess I think about like just sitting with whatever it is I'm feeling and being okay with that and being and just really like feeling like a person, I guess, and feeling heard and seen and identified. Yeah, it's usually with other people and in the presence of someone I care about. You know, I mean, kind of to parrot my point, you know, it's it is it's about it's about these moments that define who we want to be. And I'm not going to explain it anymore because I don't even know if I could explain it even more. But I think that I think that works for what I want to say. I think we did okay. <laughs> Caroline, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you would like to support Caroline, you can do so by following her on Instagram and Twitter at Scoogly Moogly. Once again, at Scoogly Moogly on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. I did want to ask you one question in relation to comedy, um, and I think it'll be a good wrap up for everything here. In your, in your, own, your, your own opinion, how many people do you think need to be offended before something becomes offensive? Oh, that's a, I mean, like, that's a good question. I guess I don't know. I uh, I don't think there is like a, an objective way to, to qualify something as, as offensive. I think that you can either just be offended at a joke or not. And I think that if you're offended personally at a joke, like just really evaluate why. I don't know. It's also just hard to say like something's point blank offensive. I mean, we can look at like the most egregious examples and say, clearly that was offensive. It gets dicier at the micro level. You know what I mean? We could all, we could play identity politics all day, but even, even that like doesn't truly answer the question, I guess, broadly. I think audiences are all different. That's probably a very... No, I, I mean, I think it goes to the aspect of comedy is very subjective and I don't believe anything's off limits. I think you can make a joke about literally anything, but it has to be somewhat well-crafted. I can't just go up there and make a Holocaust joke and not know how to make a joke because obviously it's going to be offensive to people. But I think, you know, going back to Dave Chappelle's Sticks and Stones, you know, he talked about making fun of, you got a lot of heat for making fun of trans people. And he's like, well, if I can't make fun of trans people, what's next? I can't make fun of black people. And then I can't make fun of white people. And I think everything should be on limits, but you have to craft a joke well. And I I guess the question becomes, you know, on my statement is how do we know if a joke is crafted well? I mean, it's it's one of those things where comedy is subjective and (laughs) you can't really explain it too much. 
what the joke is. What what are you making fun of at its core? And like there there are jokes that can be well disguised about what you're laughing at. You can make like a really funny Holocaust joke. I mean, okay, the best example I could think of is the comedian who did the White House Correspondents Dinner. What's her name? Michelle Wolf. Michelle Wolf got heat for um, Sarah Sanders Huckabee. There was a joke about her saying like, I actually really like Sarah. I think she's very resourceful. Like she burns facts. And then she uses that ash to create a perfect smoky eye. <laughs> like maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's lies. It's probably lies. <laughs> and the people got so mad. They're like, you know, I don't even care what, if, what your opinion is of Sarah Huckabee Sanders. But the fact like you should never be making fun of a woman for her makeup and it's like okay that wasn't the joke the joke was that she's a terrible person well that's the interesting dichotomy of identity politics people are mad because she was a republican correspondent or i think she was a republican correspondent oh yeah yeah and people identify with oh if you attack her as a republican you're attacking me as a republican i mean obviously people need to kind of chill on those identity politics because at the end of the day it's it's a joke and i think jokes are meant to kind of tiptoe the line of being just a little too deep than they need to be and being funny. Yeah, well, everything's funnier when it's heightened and tense, you know, when it's like, what are they going to say? And if you're walking that line, if you land the the, the, the punch, it's like the payoff is great because it's that much funnier because you, you built the anxiety and the tension. And I think kind of to that last story, if you're truly happy with yourself, you're probably not going to get offended if someone makes a joke about you. I guess I would agree with that too, because you're you're secure in your in, your, in how you view yourself. You're not wavered by other people's uh, like perceived opinions of you. I guess. I think if you were to ask a lot of comedians in the Twin Cities about like the what, how many people have to be offended until a joke becomes offensive, it would just be like, well, is, is it funny? <laughs> like it would just like comedians first have to be funny. Like it doesn't funny before it gets preachy or before it gets like offensive which most people at the like open mic level i guess really get ahead of themselves as far as walking the line and end up just eating shit because they don't know how to handle really tense subject matter or a really tense room um and they oftentimes have not thought through opinions <laughs> <laughs> or like so you mix not being funny with like a really unfleshed out joke premise. It's just it's just a recipe for disaster. But then at the same time, cancel culture or like getting mad at someone for that. Uh, if they don't already feel shame for it and they like revel in it, they're, they're just not going to do well or they're going to build like like a canceled culture base. You know, the people that rise out of the canceled ashes and just make way more money than they ever did when they weren't canceled. <laughs> uh, as always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest host today by Caroline, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and just trying to have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. Caroline, it is now at the point of the show where I hand off the show to you to close out the show, to perfectly encapsulate whatever it is needs to be encapsulated, to finish out this episode, to inspire people to be a better self, inspire people to be happy, inspire people to rise above. This is your presidential moment. I told you, this is not a pressure-filled moment. Yeah, <laughs> you also said it would come to me when, and I would know. And I would just say, you know, keep keep on keep on hang, hanging on uh keep on trucking you're not alone and it certainly feels like it but we're, it's a world full of people out here be good i uh suppose 
Operate with uh, sympathy. Don't give ground relative to your desire. Revel in the moments that make you feel most human. See, it came to you at the end there. It came to you at the end there. It always comes. <laughs> All right, listeners, until next episode. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. What an episode, what a guest, what a time. Thank you once again to Caroline for remotely joining us in the studio to talk about those bizarre news stories. As always, make sure to support Caroline's charity of choice, the Shift Cooperative. All it takes is $5, the price of a coffee, or sharing their mission with another person around the water cooler, wherever those pesky water coolers may be. But anyways, to the corrections. During the guest introduction portion of the episode, I mentioned a bike shortage in the US. This is 100% true. My fellow listeners, 100% true, I was not punked. Due to COVID, bike sales have gone up 120% compared to last year, and many bike shops just can't keep up with that demand. You know, people are starting to look for alternative methods of transportation, or just like myself, getting into woodworking, are looking for a new hobby that can also be active. Some biking experts believe the shortage may last until late 2021 to 2022 until bike shops can ramp up their production to match demand. And in our second news story discussing happiness and satisfaction, Futurama went off the air officially seven years ago in 2013. But as we talked about in our episode with President Unicorn Podcast on how long we should be waiting for spoilers, seven years, more than long enough. I don't want to get any angry emails because I spoiled the ending of Futurama that's been out for seven years. We, we, we already had this conversation with President Unicorn, so go back, listen to that episode, and then come back and try to email me again. <laughs> uh, Futurama was originally canceled by Fox in 2003, but was revived by Comedy Central in 2008. Eight. All right, Water Coolians, that's another Corrections Corner. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. I really mean that. Thank you for continuing to listen to the show, continually helping it grow. I mean, our Instagram has been blowing up of late. I very, very, very much appreciate that. But just thank you. Thank you. And obviously, once again, thank you to Caroline for calling into the studio and talking about some of the strangest and most weird news stories the world has to offer. But anyways, that's your Corrections. That's your episode. So get out of here. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>